And join me in prayer as we open the word. Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes and open our ears. God, thank you for the gift of the Bible. Thank you for the gift of you communicating with us to help us see what we do not see. I pray that especially today, as we look at the coming of your son into Jerusalem and the proclamation of his identity, it would be clear and compelling in the gathered body. In Jesus' name, amen. Excuse my voice if I'm a little scratchy today. Well, I want to tell you about something that happened to me this week uh, that was, to put it mildly, unusual. Um, I was trying to get in touch with a pastor in our family of churches named Derek. And so I needed to get in touch with Derek. And so Derek and I exchanged a few emails. And and eventually we settled on a time to try to, you know, one of us would call the other. And I couldn't make that time. So I I sent him an email saying I'm not going to be able to make it. Um, He called me. And so I thought, oh, man, well, I should try to call him back. So I tried to call him back the next day. He called me again. And, and I emailed him again saying, hey, man, I'm really sorry about all this. You know, what about this time? Until the next day, he called me while I was in a meeting three times in a row. I called, and then I said, can't answer. Called again, can't answer. Called again. And I thought, man, what is, man, this guy's a little aggressive. You know, like, I seems like a good brother in the Lord, but this guy's a little, little intense here. And then I get a text from Derek that says, what do you think you're doing? Who is this? In language that I can't repeat in church. He was not happy to be contacted by me. And I thought, is this like a weird joke? Like, is this, you know, I know this Pastor Derek, he seems like a nice guy. I've never known him to use this kind of language, but like, okay, you know. Uh, and, And I began to think, I don't actually think this is a real Derek. And the problem was, I thought, I don't know any other Derek's. Like, he, his, his number is in my phone. And so I, I go back and say, hey, man, wrong number, wrong number. And he replies and says, nobody has this number. How did you get this number? What is going on? And I thought, oh, no, like this guy's, this is a cartel guy. This is like, this is one of those like secret lines that they use and they've tracked my phone and they know where I am. And I want to pull one of those, you know, Mission Impossible, like take the phone, throw it out on the freeway, let it get run over and like just run for the hills. I mean, I'm thinking this guy, this guy is, he, he. so then I finally remember, oh, 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 I know how this guy's number. So I'd say, hey, look, a few weeks ago, I was walking around the neighborhood and you were doing the little numbers on the street, you know, and you said, hey, do you want me to do some numbers for you? And I said, oh, man, I've always wanted, like, we need some of those. It'll help people find our house. But he asked me, like, what, you know, what symbol do you want? And I thought immediately I'd love a Dallas Cowboys star. I mean, that'd be appropriate. And then I thought immediately my wife's going to hate that. And so I, th- I told him, here's the deal. Let me talk to my wife. We'll try to come to co- some consensus of what the logo in front of our house is going to be. And then I forgot about it but I had this guy's number. So I text him back and say, hey, look, this is what's going on. Here's how I know you. Like, sorry about all this. And he goes, like, he, he says something like, uh, okay, cool, bro. And I thought, okay. And then I get a second text from him a minute later, lies. All lies. And I, I'm like, okay, okay. Like this, this really is not good. So I like blocked his number. And if he is here, Derek, I'm sorry. I really want to publicly apologize and say that I didn't, you know, and I, I, I took the number out of my phone. I'm never going to call it again, and please don't uh, kidnap me. So I was in that moment close, but not right. The guy's name was Derek. Sure. I had his number. Sure. 
not right at all. And in a strange way, that is exactly what's happening with the crowd in this passage today. They are close. They, they, they think they know who Jesus is. They're really close in being able to grasp his identity, but they are not right. And in fact, you, you, you see that, that there's a contrast in the Gospel of Mark between this and the events that unfold. In fact, by the end of this passage, the, the people that are hoop, hooping and hollering and, and singing and throwing things in front of Jesus and proclaiming him as king, they, verse 7, it says, he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and, and that's it. The crowd disperses, right? It's not as though these are committed followers of Jesus that are like, hey, with you till the end, Jesus. No, they they participate in the big ceremony and they're like, okay, cool. We'll see what he does. Do something. All right, we'll see you later. And, And with that, they disperse. And in fact, by the end of the week, this is Palm Sunday in the text. By the end of the week, we all know what happens on Good Friday. Jesus is delivered over and crucified. And by the end of the week, another crowd shouts for his crucifixion. What's clear is that these people are close, but they're not right. They think they know who Jesus is. They're even enthusiastic about who they think Jesus is, but they don't know who Jesus is. And yet the text also reveals who Jesus really is. The key question today is, is Jesus as you know him the real Jesus? Or perhaps put another way, are you calling the right number? Just because it says Jesus and you're reaching out doesn't mean it's the right one. So my goal today is, is perhaps a little strange, is to convince some of you that perhaps you don't know the real Jesus. Maybe you're even here because you're here to celebrate Jesus. You've grown up in church. You know a lot about Jesus, but you may not know the real Jesus. And I think we all need to, to, to go with that kind of trembling and trepidation. Do I know the real Jesus? Do I have the right number in my phone? And for those of us that do know the real Jesus, what I, what I think this passage does, it helps us see him as he is and in that way calls for praise and allegiance far higher than we have offered. So three sections today. The first one is a great man, a great man. Now, before the triumphal entry, there's this strange story about the donkey, and I, I could spend a lot more time on this, but I just want to point out one thing about this that's critical. Uh, I want to focus on what Jesus asks them to do and the justification for doing it. So Jesus basically tells these people, hey, uh, what, what he tells them to do would appear by all accounts to be thievery, right? Like, it sounds super sketch. He's like, all right, there's a donkey, there's a young colt, I know where it is, go over there, take it. If anybody tries to top, stop you, your answer is, the Lord has need of it, right? That wouldn't work with any of us if somebody wa- drove off in our car today right? The security team sees somebody wandering out in the cars trying, you know, oh, a blue Mazda. Great. You try, oh, hey, the keys are in the ignition. They're going to, they're going to be, hey, what are you doing? Oh, the Lord needs it. You know, like that's not going to work. That's what Jesus is telling them to do. What, how can he ask them to do this? Now that, that phrase, the Lord is interesting. The phrase is very broad. The phrase, the Lord can mean everything from the king all the way to just a great man. So in the gospels, you see um, a Gentile a military man and a synagogue ruler and the crowds, they, they call him in different points Lord, but it's a sign of respect. It's a sign of, this is a man unlike other men. This is a man a cut above other men, whether by wealth or reputation or ability. But they don't grasp just how great that divide is. They see Jesus as a great man, but not Jesus as, who he, Jesus as he really is. 
And this strange story of the donkey actually reinforces something about Jesus that everyone around them does not see. Jesus, don't overlook this, this, the details here are remarkable that Jesus knows exactly what he's doing and this is all under his authority and control. It never tells you, like, how does Jesus know that there's a donkey in this spot that's never been ridden by another person, the cult of a donkey, and that people will willingly let it go? How could he possibly know that? Because of who the gospel of Mark reveals him to be. Jesus is not getting kind of battered around by the cultural currents around him. He's not even just responding kind of nimbly to what's going on around him. He has a mission. His steps are planned out. He is not just another great man. Gospel of Mark reveals to us he is the God man. He is a different category of human altogether. Colossians 1 says this, we, we, we pink behind the curtain and see the unveiled glory of Christ in Colossians 1, and, and Paul says this of him, he is the image of the invisible God, meaning flesh and blood walking around, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, not meaning that he's born, but, but is preeminent over all creation. He is before all things, and in him, all things hold together. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell What I mean here is that the nature of Jesus of Nazareth is unlike the nature of any other human being. He is not in a category of big movers and shakers like Caesar and Genghis Khan and whoever else. He is in another category altogether. Look, when... When I, married, when I was living out in D.C. where I married my wife, they have a, what they call a mountain, but it's like a hill. It's called Sugarloaf Mountain, and it's affectionately known as Sugar Lump Mountain because it's just like a few hundred feet high. It's just very flat there, you know, gentle inclines, and it's just this little gentle rolling hill that you go up, and it's like, oh, we climbed the mountain. And so I remember people telling me, we're going to climb the mountain, and I'm like, okay. They're like, oh, we'll do it real quick on the way after work. And I'm like, what? Like, there's no way you jump onto the Franklins and, you know, get to North Franklin Peak and then back after work. Like, where's our gear? And everybody's, this guy's in flip-flops. Like, hey, here we go. And, I'm, and then we're walking up the mountain. And I'm looking around. And we get to the top in, like, you know, 45 minutes. And I'm looking around. And they're like, oh, isn't this a great view? And I'm, like, from El Paso. And I'm like, what is wrong with you people? Like, this is... This is a hill. This is a small hill, right? Because North Franklin Peak, if you've, if you've climbed it, is about 7,000 feet high, right? Now, here is what we often do with Jesus. We say, no, 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 no. Jesus is not just like the other men who are like hills. He's much taller. You know, he's, he's a lot taller, but he's still kind of the same thing. No, he's not. Instead of thinking that way, I want you to think in a different way. Think about the Mariana Trench. The Mariana Trench in contrast to the Franklin Peak, is 36,000 feet deep. How many Franklin Mountains can you fit all the way 
down to the bottom. It is five times longer than the Grand Canyon. And the reason we don't think of it as one of the great wonders of the world is because we can't see it. The depth is there, but it is hidden. So it is with Christ. We're tempted to think, okay, well, this ruler's here, and this ruler's here, because Jesus is certainly bigger than all the other rulers. No, his depth, his majesty, his glory is hidden, but it is endless. The firstborn of all creation, the image of the invisible God. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Listen, if that is the truth, then it changes everything. It means that Jesus is not just a great man. He is the God-man whose entrance into the world redefines all of human history. He is the God-man. Second, well, actually, before I move on, let me just ask you this. Is Jesus to you what he is in reality. Is Jesus just a great man that you follow and seek to emulate sometimes? Or is he someone whose very existence redefines everything for you? Second point, then, a king. Now, you have to imagine the scene here. Jesus is traveling up to Jerusalem for the Passover festival among throngs of pilgrims headed to Jerusalem. And word quickly begins to spread through the crowd that Jesus of Nazareth is with us. Now, the people in this crowd were from these surrounding outlying areas. Perhaps they'd heard Jesus. Perhaps they'd heard from somebody who'd heard Jesus teach. Perhaps they saw him work a miracle or they were one of the, the people fed by the multiplication of the loaves or perhaps they or someone they know had been healed or at least, at the very least, everybody has a story or my cousin or my second cousin encountered Jesus and this is what happened. And so the enthusiasm begins to grow. Not only are we on our way to the festival, Jesus of Nazareth, the healer, the teacher, he is healed. Here among us, and the word travels ahead into Jerusalem, and people begin to kind of peek their heads out. Oh, Jesus of Nazareth is coming. And notice what Jesus does. Jesus has been, in a sense, in the book of Mark, hiding his identity, veiling his identity so that people did not understand who he is or would not think that he is somebody that he's not. But here he embraces the kingship of Israel. Now, this is why the cult is so important. Jesus, by obtaining the cult, is fulfilling a prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus, who in a sense has been veiling himself, finally comes right out and says it. I am the king of Israel. This symbol is consciously taken on, and he approaches Jerusalem with the symbol of kingship. And the crowd responds in kind. The crowd responds with this, this response that, 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 they, that was used in 2 Kings 9 of Jehu. So what we read in 2 Kings 9 is that in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew, blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So the crowd is, Jesus is saying, I'm the king. And the crowd is saying, you are the king. And we're going to respond in kind. So the, the placement of cloaks was basically saying, we're, we're going to submit ourselves to you as king. The waving of palm branches was, was joy over what would hope to be the, the kingdom of shalom, the kingdom of peace that he would usher in. So far, so good, right? These people 
get it. By all accounts, Jesus walking down, his disciples walking down would think, these people, they all get it. They all finally understand who Jesus is. Thank you. Like us, we're the smart ones. We saw it a long time ago. Yeah, we saw this. We got in early on this, man. Of course, you don't know their stupidity over the last number of chapters, but they're probably congratulating themselves, thinking, yeah, this is it. Now, everyone's saying, this is, this is the king. Here he is. And yet, by the end of the week, he is still dead. By the end of this glorious processional, people are drifting away. Now, we don't know. There's some, some controversy over the crowd here cr- shouting Hosanna and the crowd on Good Friday shouting crucify him. But, but what does seem apparent is that there could be, very well probably is, some overlap. Or at the very least, some of the people that are shouting Hosanna were nowhere to be found at the end when Jesus was being crucified. Perhaps some even who shouted Hosanna, also shouted for his crucifixion, pocketing the money offered by the Jewish rulers, thinking, well, Jesus' stock does not seem to be doing well now. Might as well make a quick hundred bucks. You'll give me a hundred bucks to say, crucify him? Sure. What does it reveal about the crowd? What it reveals is that the crowd thought they knew who Jesus was, but they did not. Once Jesus was arrested, this would have created a, a massive paradigm explosion for them because they would think how could he if he's the king of Israel be arrested how could he be under someone's authority how could a king deliver himself over to be tortured how could a king sink so low to be humiliated on the cross right they were willing in this moment to follow Jesus if it meant peace and prosperity and freedom from Rome but they were not willing to follow him on the road to the cross once it was apparent he would wear a crown of thorns and not a crown of gold, they were out. And yet, what is revealed here is a truer and better king than has ever lived in human history, right? In Mark, we've seen Jesus rule and reign over every sphere of life. It's like Mark's just going from sphere to sphere saying, yep, demons, total authority over there. Uh, With sickness, total authority over there. Death, total authority over that. Other rulers, total authority over them. Every single realm in which he could rule, he does rule. Colossians 1 again says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. As theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, There is not one square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is over all, does not cry, Mine. He is the king in a greater, truer sense than these people even know. He could, with a word, as he says on the cross, call forth a legion of angels and wipe Rome from the face of the earth. And yet, his kingship is revealed in this entrance in a countercultural, surprising, extraordinary way. He chooses not to enter Jerusalem on a war horse, but on a colt. He chooses over the image of warrior, humble servant king, echoing King David. Jesus, listen, I want to be really clear about this. Growing up, I always thought Jesus rode the donkey because a burro was the best he could do, right? 
It's like, listen, man, if you can afford a Mustang, great. If you can afford a nice horse, great. Jesus, he was poor, and so he had the little burro, right? And it's like sweet, and there's little precious moments, figurines of it. And it's like, oh, pobrecito Jesus. All he could do was the burro and, and everything, you know. No. Jesus could ride a wave of angels into this city and chooses the image of humility and servanthood. Who else, church, what other king is like this? That their power is limitless, and yet it is exercised and expressed in servanthood and humility. There could be great men with no humility. There could be humble men with no greatness. Jesus has both, the greatest of all and servant of all. Ferguson comments this way, think for a moment what Mark's record would convey to those who read it first the Christians in Rome. No doubt many of the Roman Christians had seen generals enter Rome in triumph to receive the accolades of victory. How stark the contrast between Roman glory and Jesus' humility must have seemed. How mighty and powerful the sword and political power by contrast with King Jesus. And then Ferguson points something out that I think is just Utterly, just like the icing on the cake, he says this. Yet we know his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, was established while the glory that was Rome disappeared into oblivion. We know that Jesus would outlast all the kingdoms of this world and break in pieces every man-centered kingdom which sets itself against it. Just ask yourself, did he succeed? Has his kingship not been proven out? Has he not outlasted the great empires of the world and any force that chooses to oppose him, even in his humility and servanthood? No, actually, through it is how he is, continues to conquer. So here's my question. Is Jesus a king to you, or is he the king over every area of your life? We all, brothers and sisters, we all have areas in our life over which we do not want Christ to cry mine, right? We all have areas in which, okay, you know what, I'll do this, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll show up at church. Are you good with that? Jesus says, the king, no. Look, he, our offering of our lives to Jesus should be commensurate with his kingship. Is he a partial king? Is he a limited king? Does he bring a kingdom that, that is impotent and kind of like, oh, well, you know, all, all he can do is this. So, well, all I'll give you is two hours on Sunday, Jesus. No. His kingdom that he will usher in is eternal, an eternal kingdom full of life and peace and shalom. And his just rule is our good. So in light of that, we say every area is on the table. Maybe for you, it's like, yeah, you know what? I'll tell, let Jesus tell me how to live uh, my friendship life, but not my romantic life. Or I'll tell Jesus, yeah, you know what? I'm going to submit you know, my parenting to you, Jesus. Just don't talk about my relationship with my parents. No, I don't want, no, you don't get into that, Jesus. That's between me and them, right? Or Jesus, you know what? I'll, I'll give this and this and this to you, but don't you dare talk about my money. That's my money, right? Is Jesus a king or the king is the question. Third, a savior. Verse 9 says, And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, often the crowd, as they made their way to Jerusalem, would sing the Psalms of Ascent or other songs that they knew. And so it seems as though uh, Jesus, you know, preceding Jerusalem chose the song that everybody was going to sing for them. The crowd sings this particular song, and the word Hosanna literally means save us, or please save us, or save I pray, meaning it's a Godward uh, request for salvation and a rejoicing in God's providing salvation to his people. And so this is something that the, the people singing this would have immediately thought, I really hope Jesus is the king because we really need him to bring the kingdom. They're, they were marching into Jerusalem under the eye of Roman occupation. Their rulers in Israel were propped up puppet kings that were corrupt and perverse. Their economy had been devastated through unjust taxation. And so what they wanted, what they hoped for, what they saw in Jesus was a savior who could bring a kingdom that would drive out the Romans, take the throne, give everybody a lower tax burden, lots of good crops, lots of good life, establish that kingdom. That's what they wanted. And you can actually see it, according to one of the commentators that read, Wessel points out that the song of the crowd is not actually directed at Jesus fully. It's directed at what they hope Jesus will bring them. Look at verse 10. Verse 9 rejoices, and he who comes in the name of the Lord, verse 10 says, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. This is a request for salvation, but a request for a kingdom of their own making, a kingdom in their own mind. And this is why the crowd, for all of its spectacle and all of its shouting and all of its singing, gets close but is wrong. They all wanted Jesus to save, but they all had very particular ideas of what his salvation would look like. Like Only Jesus, the king of all, actually sees the type of salvation that they need, right? Jesus sees in the crowd, even in his disciples, people who will shout his praise and then turn away. Jesus sees, even in this march, their deep need for salvation from sin and hell and judgment, Right? Because what, what, what this crowd is doing is what we all do, which is to say, listen, I'm happy to worship you, God, unless as long as you give me what I really want. And that way, God becomes a kind of a way station on the way to our ultimate kingdom. What we want is, I want to get married. I want this. I want to have kids. I want this life. I want this income. I want to have this. I want this level of health. I want all of these things. And can you do this for me, Jesus? Man, in so many ways, we're just like the crowd. But Jesus sees that that's the heart of the problem. What sin does, as we saw in the garden, sin takes the good kingdom that God offers and says, no, the thing I don't like about it is that you get to rule. What about me? What if I get to rule? Right, that's the essence of sin is saying, I want to rebel against God's just and good rule so that I can pursue what I sinfully want. And in that comes judgment. In that comes death. And in that, Jesus sees the reason, the, 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 the core reason of their need for salvation. They do not just need a Band-Aid. They need utter redemption, 
utter propitiation, utter reconciliation with God the Father. And, and, and this, Jesus knows exactly what they need because look at verse 11. Where does Jesus go? He enters as king, and where does the king go? Verse 11, and he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. At the end of this week, the Lamb of God will be brought probably by the very same road, and it will be delivered to the temple, prepared for sacrifice to be made for the sins of the people for another year. Jesus, as the king, proceeds into the temple, and he could not say in more strong language, more strong symbolism, I am the king who also comes as the lamb. I, will, I can do anything in the universe, and what I choose to do is to lay my life down for my people as a lamb for their salvation, a deeper, truer, better salvation than they even thought to ask for. See, the people wanted political freedom, but Jesus came to be freedom, to bring freedom in every sense from sin and death and hell. The people wanted Jesus to shed Roman blood for them. Jesus would shed his own blood for them. The people wanted Jesus to emerge victorious over Rome and their rulers. Jesus came to emerge victorious over even death itself. And the people wanted a limited political, geographic, nation-state kingdom. But Jesus came to establish an ever-expanding, eternal, and heavenly kingdom that will never be destroyed and can never be shaken. This is what Jesus came to do. Sinclair Ferguson again says Jesus had come to take his throne but had committed himself to begin his reign from a cross. So do you hope Jesus will be a savior of some area of your life? Do you have a real specific thing that you're asking Jesus to do? Or, or do you see that your need goes deeper, that our need goes deeper? It's not just for this situation or that situation or this thing or that thing. It's all of it. We need salvation in the broadest sense of the word and deepest sense of the word. Do you see Jesus as that kind of savior? Now, very briefly, I want to suggest some implications for our lives. Um, Going back to my conversation with Derek, uh, my new friend there, I realized where I went wrong. It was when I pulled out my contacts to call Derek, and there were two Dereks actually in my phone. One just said Derek. The other one said Derek, last name Overstreet, right? And so I thought, Derek's fine. When what I should have thought was, more detail is probably better right? Like, it, it's more specific. <laughs> so the last name would have gotten me on the right track, right? If I could stretch that metaphor for a second, he, he, stay with me here. Many of us are here in some sense because we're interested in following Jesus. But sometimes the Jesus in our mind, sometimes the Jesus we even pray to is not the real Jesus, and this passage, in a sense, adds a last name to Jesus so that we know, yeah, the Jesus that I'm relating to, that is Jesus. And what does this passage say? This is not just Jesus, a good guy. It's Jesus, the God-man. 
eternal, pre-existent before everything, made everything with the word of his power, right? That, that, that Jesus, okay? It's not just Jesus, the guy who asked me to give my Sundays to him. No, it's Jesus, the king of all. Not just Jesus, the guy I'm hoping will save my marriage, but Jesus who offers complete and total salvation, right? We need the last name, as it were, of Jesus. So here's a couple implications. First, sometimes we can see Jesus as a king, but not a savior. Sometimes we, we can begin to see Jesus as just a guy making a lot of rules that we have to follow. And that, honestly, for a lot of my early childhood and even my teen years, that's how I related to Jesus. Like he's a guy that has a lot of rules and the more rules I keep, the more points I earn and the more points I earn, I can cash them in for prayer. You know, you need a big thing, like I need to find my sock, cash in 20 prayer points, right? I need a big thing, like I need a girlfriend. Jesus is like, you're gonna need a lot more than that, right? So this is, that's, I mean, honestly, like if I'm brutally honest, that's the way I often related to God in my teens. I saw him as king, but not as savior. And I could tell because of this. When I sinned, I was utterly burdened and hopeless. Because I thought I gotta stop failing. I gotta be good. And all along, Jesus was far better than I knew. And through the church and through other means, God revealed himself to me progressively as a savior, not just a king. That when I go to him in prayer, he's not adding up my points. He's saying it's paid with my blood. Son, talk to me. That's a much better Jesus. If you don't know that Jesus, friend, today, I want to encourage you. He is not just a king. He is your savior. Don't just try to be good. Try to be utterly despairing of your own righteousness and fall on Jesus and he'll be there. He will be there. And one kind of quick test you can tell if you, if you believe in Jesus as savior, as a Christian, is there will be the consistent and persistent presence of joy in your life. If you often lack joy, if your faith and Bible reading and prayer are often marked by, oh, okay, you know, I don't think you know I'm a savior yet or fully. Because if you did, you'd be like the guys Jesus heals and they go away walking, leaping, praising God, saying, man, I was paralyzed and I can walk. I was dead and I got called out of that tomb, right? That produces something in us when you know Jesus is savior. Second, it's also possible to know Jesus as Savior, but not as King. This is where sometimes you, you could be glad that Jesus has saved you, glad that, you know, he's, you know, he's out there and he's secured your future, glad you're not going to hell, woo, you know. But then when it comes to living your life under the kingship of Jesus, it's like, well, well, like Chuck was talking about last week, right, when he's, you know, 19, he's thinking, well, give me a decade and then I'll really turn my life over to you as a king. I'm having too much fun. Right? This, is, this is how we can think. That's when you begin to see Jesus as a savior, but not a king. And the two go together, right? Jesus bought us back to the kingdom of God with his blood. And if we believe that, if your heart truly is transformed by that, there's something in you that goes, man, here's my life. Take it. What do you want? Where are we going? You're like the demoniac guy that, that, that when, when Jesus is leaving on the boat, he begs Jesus that he might go with him. That's a guy that got Jesus as his savior and it spilled over into Jesus as his king. So here's my question. Is there an increasing year over year 
placing of your life under the kingship of Jesus? Do you, or put it another way, do you, let Jesus to tell, do you let Jesus tell you what to do in more and more areas of your life every year? That's what this calls for. Third, a person but not the person, right? And I just want to say, I grew up going to church. I always thought Jesus was important, but there is important and then there's life-changing, Right? I remember this one guy in college was a climber, and he loved to climb at Waco Tanks. And so as I got to know him, started to form a little bit of a friendship with him, he would be like, like I'd be like, hey, man, do you want to meet for study group? We got a big test coming up. He'd be like, oh, man, yeah, man, I'll meet Thursday, man. Well, I can't meet. I got to meet Friday. He's like, oh, bro, I can't meet Friday, you know? I'm like, well, what do you? And he was always, like, busy. And it's like, oh, I can't do that Wednesday. I can't do that. Oh, a... And then finally one day I was like, what about all next weekend? And he's like, yeah, I'm busy. And so I finally asked him, hey, man, what, what are you doing? Like, you're always busy. And he's like, oh, man, I'm climbing, bro. And so I found out he would, like, go out to Waco Friday and, like, just camp there for, like, two days and then, like, show up, like, Monday morning. And that was his life. He just climbed, right? Everything revolved around climbing. He was dating a girl. She broke up with him. Why? Because of the climbing, right? He got poor grades. Why? Because of the climbing. He kept missing his sight. And as I remember thinking, man, this guy's crazy. His whole life is revolving around this one thing. And here's the sad part. That's never going to give him what he's really longing for. But if we know Jesus as life-defining God, man, king, and savior, it really does reorient our whole life. It becomes the thing around which everything else orbits. And here's the thing. It's worth it. It's finally a thing that gives life instead of takes it, that will go on and on, that will last eternally. It, it, it is the thing every human heart is longing for. So let me just say briefly, because we're opening the kids' ministry, one, one quick note to parents. Parents, I, I really think for all of us as parents, this has to be our goal, that our kids grow up knowing Jesus as Savior and as Lord. If, if, if our kids end the week with only Jesus as king and us telling them, you didn't do enough again. They're not seeing who Jesus really is. They need him as savior. But similarly, if your kids, you know, they always hear about Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you, but you never ask them to change anything in their lives, they're not really living with Jesus as king or as savior either. And this is our heart. This is our heart with the new kids ministry wing opening. Our heart is that the real Jesus would be unveiled through the pages of scripture for decades to come in our church. And that happens here on Sunday. That happens much more even in our homes. So let me just end by saying this. When we see Jesus for who he really is, he is far better than we imagined. One quick example is my wife. Um, so I've been married to Jen for almost 13 years. Is that right, babe? 13? Yeah, 13 this fall. And I'm, I, I love her. I'm in love with her. She's, she's very capable. She's awesome. But when she uh, got asked to start helping with the kids' ministry project and the design stuff, I, she came, I came home one day. She had all these drawings done of sketches of what the rooms are going to look like. And I looked at the sketches, and I looked at her, and I looked back at them, and I said, did, did you do these? And she was like, well, yeah. And I looked at her. And I was like, I didn't know you could draw. Like, you can draw? And she's like, well, yeah. And I'm like, why hasn't this come up before? She's like, I don't know. It's just never come up. Like, I don't just draw, you know. And, and I'm looking, and I'm like, I didn't know you could do interior design. And she's like, well, it's never come up. Like, and, and, and here's the thing. 
it wasn't like she acquired some crazy new skill. It was just that I finally saw who she had always been. And it made me think, man, I've been living with this girl for 13 years. I didn't know the half of how cool she is. When we grow more and more in understanding of Jesus, that should be a regular experience for us. It's not like, oh, I, now it's a different Jesus, but more, oh, I knew you were a king, but I didn't know you were that good. I knew you were a savior, but I didn't know you were that great. This is the effect that it should have on our hearts. So let's stand and we'll end with, with, with singing to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I do pray for these two categories today. I pray for first people who may be just wrestling with the, the, the Jesus that they've had in their mind is not mapping on to the Jesus of Mark 11. And I pray that you would unveil your son, unveil yourself to them, God, that they might either place their, their lives under the lordship of Jesus Christ and trust in Jesus as savior. I pray that they would do that, God. And I pray for those of us who perhaps know Jesus as Savior and know Jesus as King, but we get used to it. God, may we not get used to it. May we have the regular experience of, man, I did not know how good Jesus was. I didn't know how big of a Savior he actually is. Lord, I pray that that would be the pattern of our life, that we would see the greatness of our Savior and our response be to lay everything down at his feet yet again. In your name we pray. Amen.